Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Hi, Noreen. How are you? I'm all right, Emily. How are you? <laughs> okay. How was your week? No, it was awful. <laughs> it was terribly shit. <laughs> The very, very top. <laughs> Listen, our, our listeners expect us to be brutally honest, and I'm being brutally honest. Who expects to get influenza A in the summer? Mm. This lady, goodness, I was so sick. Chesty sick, where I, I never get chesty sick, even with COVID, which I've had three times, as we both have. I was bringing up, sorry to be so graphic, but kind of that green yellow thick phlegm from my chest oh. couldn't breathe turned into pneumonia it was just horrendous both my kids had it too you know two weeks of just being absolutely thrown under waves of illness which i'm now coming on the other end of it but i've developed something really quite worrying i think in that every morning and Actually, even just when I sit down and rest for five minutes, when I get up, my feet, it feels like every bone in, in my feet ache. And that's since the virus? Since the virus and my hands. Once I get going, it's okay. They loosen up and I can walk without pain. But if I sit for five minutes and then get up and walk again, my feet, it's just awful. And I noticed because I have been doing some yoga because I'm speaking to a breath specialist who wants me to do movement with my breathing, which is so unlike anything I've ever done before, as you know. But isn't it wonderful? Oh, no, it's horrible. So <laughs> I have to do this pose called cow and cat. <laughs> yeah, and cat cow. Cat cow. And uh, I have to lean on my wrists. And I didn't tell this to the lovely talented super lovely woman who's teaching me how to breathe again and how to do yoga it's really helpful I, i'm feeling muscles that i hadn't felt before but my wrist good grief i was on my hands and knees i could just feel pain in my wrists and i was like this is what people with arthritis feel every day it's yeah. awful and i'm really worried that this latest virus has triggered some kind of joint inflammation i hope it's not long term but it could be because we never know and because you have family history yeah. of it yeah my mum has rheumatoid arthritis and i'm worried that this virus could have triggered the beginnings of some kind of rheumatoid arthritis on me wow no i'm really really busy and i'm managing to do a lot and i'm even after the virus which was really stupid I'll, once i felt well enough i started to try and walk and run again which we know is super counterproductive to everything we learned. So we know that humans are absolute idiots, but that's what I was doing. <laughs> because I did feel in the weeks leading up to my coming over to the US that that being able to exercise was really helping me tremendously. Physically or mentally? Both. You know, yeah. a lot of it was like my mental spirit that I felt like I was getting back on my feet. Yeah. But I'm not really able to do it much because of my sore feet. Yeah. So that was my couple of weeks. How was yours? So I actually had a 
period of really quite good wellness. And the reason that I noticed how good my wellness was, was when I woke up on Monday and felt, oh, this is what long COVID is. And you realise that actually probably two, two and a half years, there were certain symptoms that never, ever went away. And in the last few weeks, I had got rid of those symptoms. I hadn't had the tinnitus. I hadn't had that pulsatile tinnitus, that whooshing through my head. And when I woke up, I think it was on Monday, I could feel this tightness in my chest. And it's not that I have asthma or anything like that, but I do these breathing exercises when I'm walking and I wasn't able to get the same amount of air into my lungs. And I was really, really air hungry, which I think means that your carbon dioxide is all dysregulated in a way that it hadn't been the day before. And my heart was going funny just going up the stairs. It's actually settled down again now. But yeah, it really highlighted how good a few weeks that I had had because I have actually been feeling relatively normal. Not back to my old life, but feeling relatively normal. And not waking up and wanting to die from pain every morning is such a revelation. Waking up and feeling good is just amazing. Is it good or is it just feeling not in pain? <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. The bar is so low. <laughs> I know. I I don't know. I maybe, maybe attribute it to to the breathing, the really quite intense breathing that I've been doing and the wonderful ice bath that you gifted me. You know me. I'm all into the very holistic methods of healing which I'm so excited that I think you might be coming around to my school of thought on this as well <laughs> which um, I, do, I do think I think anything that makes you feel good in any shape or form is worth pursuing including eating monster munch whenever you need to <laughs> well monster munch is not something that was recommended by our guest this week but he is credited with being the founder of functional medicine. So he is very much about bringing all of the sides of medicine or healing together to try and heal holistically. Dr. Leo Galland, he has an organization called the Foundation for Integrative Medicine. And I guess that is exactly what he does. He tries to integrate the various aspects of how we can get well. Yeah, he's one of those rare medical doctors who looks at your whole body instead of just looking at one part of you. And he looks at supplements and herbal preparations and things like that that are not normally considered to such an extent in the mainstream medical profession. For the past 40 years, what has guided my practice in medicine is the recognition that the disease model of illness does not work very well for many people. And so the conventional model is try to identify what disease does this person have? And then you treat the disease. Well, that may work in some situations, but there are many situations involving chronic illness in which that doesn't work. And I've evolved and taught other approaches to diagnosis, something that I call person-centered diagnosis, which looks at the triggers uh, and effects and the antecedents in each individual case. I'm, I'm not going to go into that now, 
in detail, but for people who have had COVID-19 and have symptoms, COVID may have acted as an event that created their present situation. And there can be biological factors, there can be psychosocial factors, the effects of deconditioning. And I try to work it through on an individual basis with each person that I'm treating. So is it like the proverbial meteor hitting the body then causing all the aftershocks? Well, yeah, for a lot of people, that's exactly the way it is. But there are some people for whom the meteor doesn't even seem to hit the body very hard. Yeah. Mm, they, like they don't us. get very sick. Yeah. But there is a process. Well, there's several processes, which I try to describe in this concept, this graphic that I created called the web of long COVID. The web of long COVID. One of the things that even before the pandemic has been pretty well documented is a phenomenon called glial priming. And the glia are parts of the immune system in the brain. And there's been something that stimulated them. A second thing can come along and they overreact. Now, sometimes it's good when the immune system overreacts to a second stimulus because it protects you, but sometimes it's damaging and it creates excess inflammation. And do you think that that, that glial priming, the suggestion that there's something that's come before and then the COVID has come in as the meteor, is the thing that determines who gets long COVID and who recovers from COVID? That's a large part of it. Yeah, that's a good question. And that is a large part of it. But there's some people for whom I think COVID is what does the priming. And then there's a second event that occurs or a third event. And they don't get back to their baseline that they were at before COVID. There's a concept in medicine and biology of homeostasis, which basically is a change occurs, but then you return to where you were before the change. What happens with a lot of chronic illness is something called allostasis. You seem to stabilize, but you're not really where you were before this event. You're in a different state. There's a higher level let's say, of immune activation in your body. It's just reached a new equilibrium, but you pay a high cost for allostasis. Yet it, it appears to make you stable, but it's not the same as returning to where you were before whatever this was happened to you. I think with long COVID, none of us feel particularly stable. <laughs> we're yes. on this roller coaster up and down. In your web of long COVID, the very center of that is that the virus comes in and destroys or causes damage to the ACE2. And from that, all of the other elements of the web cascade out and affect all of the different systems of the body. How does that manifest itself in this up and down rather than being a stable allostasis? Well, uh, so the first thing about allostasis is because it is a very high cost attempt at stabilization, there will be a lot of fluctuations and you feel them. You feel the fluctuations much more. So ACE2, it is the entry point for the virus into most cells in the body. And it is also a vitally 
essential enzyme. And the loss of ACE2 activity creates an imbalance in a system, an important regulatory system called the renin-angiotensin system, or RAS, which promotes inflammation, blood clots, scarring, and changes in blood flow that are all kind of characteristic of things that people experience as part of long COVID and, and acute COVID as well. And you can trace almost all the complications of acute COVID to loss of ACE2 activity. ACE2 is there to try and regulate many different functions and prevent hyperreactivity to infection or injury or trauma. Now, there are some effects of COVID and long COVID that can be directly traced to ACE2 deficit and others that are more indirect. The inflammation of blood vessels, which is one of the foundations of the pathology in COVID-19, that can be directly traced to the ACE2 deficit and the RAS imbalance. The microbial dysbiosis in the gut, that is the alteration in gut bacteria that occurs, which is an important contributing factor. That can also be traced directly to the loss of ACE2 because ACE2 plays a very important role in the GI tract and it's involved in the transport of amino acids. It has a, a unique effect there. It supports the transport of what are called large neutral amino acids, especially tryptophan. And the interference with that then impacts the immune system in the gut, contributes to the leaky gut phenomenon, and allows the dysregulation of gut microbes to occur. And, and that's been tracked from the onset of symptoms to long COVID. And people do not necessarily have a dysbiotic gut before they get sick, but the dysbiosis occur. I mean, they may, certainly they may, but dysbiosis occurs once the infection occurs, and you can actually predict who's going to recover and who's going to go on to have long COVID from the status of the gut microbiome about two or three weeks after the onset of infection. Wow, that's fascinating. The third area in which ACE2 is directly involved is something that in my web of long COVID I call monocyte polarization. And that actually is a simplification at that time. <laughs> but um, there are a group of cells that are related to one another called monocytes and macrophages. And they are the most evolved and complex cells in a part of the immune system called the innate immune system. They are very important in COVID-19. They have very complex life cycles um, that are, in most of the discussions, are overly simplified as, well, there's the pro-inflammatory and the anti-inflammatory. The body doesn't actually think pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory. The way the body thinks, the immune system is patrol, attack, repair, resolve, remember. Those are the five functions. And they're, they're carried out in different ways by different kinds of cells. And regulation of that process owes a lot to the role of monocytes and macrophages in immune regulation. And that is directly impacted by ACE2 deficit. 
So those are the nodes that hold the web, you know, that, that connect ACE2 directly to different strands of the web. But then there are all sorts of things that happen as an indirect result. Downstream, as it were. Yes. Yeah. Downstream. There's dysfunction to mitochondria, which are the energy generating centers in the cells. And that partly is due to ACE2 deficit, but it's also due to the direct effects of the virus on mitochondria. And that ties into another change that occurs, which is it's just a, a whole shift in the bioenergetics of cells during the course of COVID-19, some of which is adaptive and functional and, and an attempt to boost the immune system, but it needs to be controlled. And mitochondrial resilience is part of that control. The mitochondria are not able to restore their activity properly. There are many things that do it. Part of this complex puzzle of what's creating um, mitochondrial dysfunction. So the monocyte and macrophage problem, uh, polarization basically, from my perspective, just means that the normal life cycle and of these cells is interrupted and they get stuck. And it's the stuckness that is what's promoting many of the features of long COVID. Because that causes inflammation. Is that correct? Yes, because it causes inflammation. And then there's this vicious cycle in which the inflammation aggravates the endothelial, the blood vessel dysfunction, which causes the clotting. The clotting then creates more blood vessel dysfunction and it keeps going round and round. Now, people can get better. It depends a lot on the individual, but there's this altered physiology in which your body is kind of stuck in a hypercoagulable, pro-inflammatory state with messed up gut microbiome. Several of your organs may already have been impacted by it and it may improve, but then something happens and it gets worse. And so there are all these ups and downs. And sometimes all it takes is too much activity mm. to throw things off. And one of the important features in my experience in people who really get stuck, who don't respond to the treatments that we think they should respond to, who are sensitive to everything, and this is especially true with the people with POTS and autonomic dysfunction, there is a type of cell called a mast cell. Yeah. And mast cell, they're very primitive cells in the immune system and multifunctional, and they become imbalanced. There's a condition called mast cell activation syndrome, which is starting to receive a fair amount of attention, and it deserves to in the context of long COVID, but it's not purely a COVID phenomenon. I've been working with it as a concept for about 13 years I now. think I've heard you describe it before as a, a controversial syndrome. Is that due to people not necessarily believing that it's true or because I went through your MCAS symptoms and in all except for two of them basically apply to me. It's getting less and less controversial because it's be getting more and more widely recognized. And understood. Yes. Yeah. It's an evolving area and the understanding of it is very dynamic. Historically, pre-pandemic, 
the main notion of mast cell activation is that this was genetically determined, that there were people whose mast cells were genetically programmed to hyperreact, and then something would happen, or maybe it was just the passage of time or a nutrient depletion or something else, and the effect of their genes would become more obvious. And there's so many people with post-COVID illness who have evidence of mast cell activation that there's a much wider recognition that this is a real phenomenon and needs to be addressed. And essentially it is actually part of the immune system, whereas I think it's spoken about, I don't necessarily think that people realize that it's all part of the same thing. It's all part of the same system. It's not just that you're allergic, it's actually your immune system struggling. Mast cells are part of the immune system. But here's what a lot of doctors don't even know. The cells that line the blood vessels, endothelial cells, they're part of the immune system. Platelets are part of the immune system. These cells that have other functions, they're lining blood vessels, they're regulating transport, they're causing blood clots. Yet those are the functions that we recognize them for. But they are all constantly in contact with the immune system. They react to it. Substances that they secrete impact the immune system. They are very highly integrated into the immune system. Mast cells are, you might say, professional immune cells because they don't have functions outside the immune system. Although I, that all depends on how you look at it, actually, you know, because mast cells cause the symptoms that we associate with allergy, especially acute allergy, because they make about 200 different chemicals that they will release when they're stimulated. And the best known of these is histamine. They're a major source of histamine. So that will cause itching and sneezing and wheezing and, and swelling and redness that we associate with allergic reactions. But there are many other substances that sometimes produce contradictory effects. And they are triggered by the antibodies involved in allergic reactions, but they're also triggered independently of those antibodies. So you get these reactions that are called pseudo-allergic. That is, they're not due to true allergy, but they look just like allergy because these other means for triggering mast cells become active. Is that why, for someone like me, I can tell you that my body reacts as soon as I eat certain things, as soon as I touch certain things. I have what to all intents and purposes looks like an allergic reaction, not an anaphylaxis, but my eczema comes up, my mouth splits, I get hot, I get itchy. And yet if I go for allergy testing, nothing, I'm not allergic to things. Is that why? Because it's not a true allergic reaction, it's the histamine. It, well, it may, it may be, histamine is part of it. It may not be the only chemical involved. There are two possibilities there. One, that when you get tested for allergies, they're looking at your body making a type of antibody called IgE to a specific substance. Now, IgE does trigger mast cells, but there are at least four types of allergic reactions. And each of them has two to four subtypes. So you might yet have some true allergies that are not being picked up 
the tests. That's possible. Or it may be that the real issue is these hyperactive mast cells. So that all sorts of triggers or stimuli that we call nonspecific create these pseudo-allergic actions. And that is pretty common after COVID-19 in people who are really sick. The other thing about mast cell activation, you have the skin manifestations, but um, not everybody will get skin manifestations because there are mast cells that are in the skin. They have certain distinctive characteristics. In the tissues of the body, inside the body, most of the mast cells are around blood vessels. They're called perivascular or your nerve endings. And the perivascular mast cells respond when platelets become activated. That is, when there's a clotting phenomenon going on, the mast cells get recruited into the action. So you can have perivascular mast cells responding to platelet activation, and there's no impact in the skin. So it's all internal, and you don't see anything externally. You can't rely on the skin manifestations to know that there's a mast cell issue. The mast cells that are associated with nerve endings, I think, are very important. And they play a role in chronic pain because there actually is a microscopic structure that when two nerves communicate with one another, they connect, and that connection is called a synapse. Well, mast cells cluster around the endings of uh, sensory nerves and autonomic nerves nerves that regulate the automatic functions of the body, and they form pseudosynapses. You can actually see these under the microscope. And so this is a true neuroimmune axis that's actually visible under the microscope. And so they not only respond to nerve signaling, they can either increase and amplify or tone down nerve signaling. And in chronic pain, mast cells will amplify the pain signal. So they're just, they're a wide range of effects of mast cell function in the body. Now, one of the things that's not appreciated about mast cells is that although they're pro-inflammatory as we understand them, you know, whenever somebody says, oh, this is pro-inflammatory, that's a reflection of the particular mountaintop they're standing on and looking around because things can be pro or anti, you know, there's this very dynamic, changeable process going on. Mast cells can be anti-inflammatory. They promote wound healing. If there's a blood clot, like in the leg, for example, mast cells get attracted into it, but they become genetically programmed to resolve the clot, not to make the clot worse. Although in a lot of situations, the mast cells are aggravating clotting. So uh, my theory, what happens with COVID-19 and the reason we're seeing so many mast cell problems is that there's something that happens to mast cells in the course of COVID-19 that interferes with the anti-inflammatory response of the mast cells. So all you get is this histamine-releasing pro-inflammatory reaction. Uh, that has some downstream effects on the immune system. Histamine, for example, really is immune suppressive, and it interferes the ability of 
your T lymphocytes to control viral infections. Yeah, I thought that was a fascinating point when I read that in your paper, this suppression of the T lymphocytes, because obviously we have had a lot of discussions about the T lymphocytes. Can you just explain that process? Okay, well, T lymphocytes are the most complicated part of the immune system. They're the most <laughs> complex cells. They're both foot soldiers and generals. That is, there are so many types of T lymphocytes and they communicate with T lymphocytes. They communicate with other immune cells, especially monocytes, to really try and simplify it. They are involved in recognizing that there's a threat from some kind of foreign invader, remembering that foreign invader if it ever comes back. And that's where there can be a problem. Some of them will actually attack directly. They're called T killer cells, but others are called T suppressor cells and they turn off the inflammatory response. And T cells play a critical role in making sure that inflammation and attack doesn't get out of hand. And then how does the histamine impact them? Histamine interferes with probably mostly the, what are the killer cells, the T, the T cell memory that allows killing. It's complicated and it's not necessarily the same for everybody. But antihistamines actually can help the immune system kill better. This has been demonstrated in cancer as well as in viral infections. And it's probably because the cells that are most sensitive to the negative effect of histamine, the down-regulating effect, are these killer T cells. Are those also known as NK cells? No, NK cells are not T lymphocytes. That's a different type of... NK stands for natural killer. Yep. And natural killer lymphocytes are actually part of the um, what's called the innate immune system. And of course, some of these attempts to create structure are a little artificial. But the, the basic way that we think about the immune system is there's something called the innate immune system and there's something called the adaptive immune system. The innate immune system is what you're born with. And it recognizes certain molecules that present what are called motifs and it leaps into action. Once that's been activated, there are then specific antigens that become presented to B lymphocytes and to T lymphocytes, which then remember the antigen. It's like, here, remember this, because the next time you see it, I want you to respond right away and not wait 10 days for me to wake you up. And that's the adaptive immune system. And that's the adaptive immune system. So I had a T-cell subset done because there was a lot of talk about T-cells being coming exhausted and some people having very low levels of certain T-cells, similar to other viral illnesses like HIV. And what came back was that my NK cells were extremely low, my CD4 and my CD8 cells were extremely low, which is really interesting, but they've recovered over time. So a year ago, that was the case. And I had a similar test done about six months ago, and they had recovered somewhat. That's good news. And, and actually, there was a study done that just looked at the natural history of long COVID, which found that there is a steady improvement for most people. 
over a two-year period. And that's probably true for other post-viral syndromes, that even if nothing particular is done, as long as you don't make yourself worse or something else doesn't happen, that there will be a gradual recovery. But there's still millions of people who two years out have not recovered. Do you think part of that is that we keep getting reinfected with COVID? Mitigation's gone. We don't have a very good defense against it. The, vi- the vaccines, they don't stop you getting COVID. So a lot of people who get long COVID end up having flares every time they get any other virus, including reoccurrence of COVID. Right. Well, some of that may be co-specific to COVID and some may not be. I, mm. I have a couple of patients who actually got much better when they got reinfected. Ah. And when it comes to the vaccines, kind of 50-50. Yeah. A lot of people have no impact on their long COVID from vaccines, but some people get much worse. Mm. And I've seen some people get really much better after being vaccinated. Like it's given your immune system a kick. Yeah. And so that concept of being stuck, it's like something comes along and pushes you and it unsticks whatever was stuck. And oh, now things are starting to move. And uh, But that doesn't mean you're going to stay unstuck unfortunately. And disturbances to T-cells certainly are likely to play a role. Part of the problem with the T-cells is that if you have a chronic infection, the T-cells really do get exhausted and don't get the strong killer cell response. And it doesn't have to necessarily be an active infection. It could just be persistence of whatever the antigenic stimulation is, viral proteins in tissues. And we know that this occurs. There was a fascinating study, very concerning, but people who were getting routine colonoscopies after COVID-19, the biopsies that were done were stained for viral RNA and viral proteins. People who were getting them because they had inflammatory bowel disease, it was quiescent. It was not active, routine surveillance. The people who had long COVID symptoms had persisting viral proteins or viral RNA in the cells of the colon. The people who had fully recovered did not. Now, that actually, from my perspective, is a failure of macrophage function which is why I think macrophages are so important. Which is, it's essentially viral persistence. The macrophages have not cleared that virus. It's the debris. In this case, they weren't able to demonstrate that there was live virus. Yeah. So it's like there's this debris that's left and it hasn't been cleared up. And there's a failure of the function of these macrophages in particular. Macrophages account for maybe 10% of the cells in most tissues and may become activated in a particular way. One of their eventual functions is the function of resolve. They're they're responsible for attack and repair, but the resolution to return to true homeostasis, a lot of that lies with macrophages. So if you have this persistent antigenic stimulation because of the viral fragments remaining in the tissues, that's because the macrophages Something prevented them from doing their job properly. And ACE2 is very important for monocytes and macrophages to fulfill that role of moving from attack to repair to resolve. 
and they're essential for the resolve step. Now, you have treated people who have got better and you have created a very comprehensive guide available on your website to the steps that people need to do. And the first steps that you believe is that we need to address that viral residue. Is that right? Well, the first thing that I want to be sure about with my patients is they don't have an ongoing active viral infection. And right now, there's no good way to measure that, to try and answer that question. Do you have an active infection or not? And so I recommend, you know, a two or three week protocol kind of introductory of antiviral, natural antiviral substances that can help to make sure that the virus is cleared. It includes a specific probiotic and includes some herbal products that have demonstrated antiviral effects against this virus. Now, we've spoken to both the makers of Tolovid and uh, Vedicinals 9, which are you suggesting that you use those two in combination or choose one? Because one of the things that we thought was really interesting to speak to you is we've obviously spoken to the people that make some of these things, and they are going to tell us about the positive impact. Have you seen people having a clear positive benefit from these products? Yeah, yes. I, yeah, I have. Now, the question is whether, because these are multifunctional substances, medicinal nine is a very carefully balanced group of herbs that have multiple functions, not just antiviral. And so if somebody responds well to Physicinals 9, as a lot of people do, is it because it's killing the virus or because it's doing something else? And frankly, they're not going to be on this forever anyway. They're going to do it for two to six weeks. I've been on it for nine months. Wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because I thought maybe it was helping, so I didn't want to stop it. If you notice a clear benefit from it, then something to consider is, okay, what's the nature of the benefit? That is, I've seen people who felt that their mast cell activation improved. And it may be some of the herbs, oh, there's quercetin in it in a highly absorbable form, for example. Some of the herbs are mast cell stabilizing or or anti-inflammatory. Tolovid is one herbal product, but it also has more effects than just antiviral effects. It has anti-inflammatory effects. And, and there's a probiotic that I use also that has antiviral activity. I don't know if it's available in the UK. Um, comes from Russia. It makes it a little hard to get these days. But I, I don't see this as, as a long-term program. I think I see it as an introduction to what we can to get rid of the virus in the gut and in cells of the body. There's some very interesting research from Italy, which I don't think I cite in that document because no one has figured out what to do about this yet. But this virus is capable of inhabiting bacteria. It becomes what is called a bacteriophage. That's not unheard of, but it is a pretty rare phenomenon that a virus that can infect mammals can also enter into bacteria and live there. Now, bacteriophages have complicated roles in bacteria. And the Italian researchers identified certain species of bacteria, normal, healthy bacteria that would get infected by this virus. And the virus could survive there. We haven't quite figured out what the ideal protocol is to get the the virus out of those gut bacteria. Uh, And some of the 
bacterial dysbiosis that's seen as a result of COVID. I think is the result of that because there is one real important keystone species that is really depleted. That actually is a species that is most susceptible to bacteriophages in general and is particularly susceptible to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And when the virus enters the bacterium, there are a couple of things that can happen. It may just live there and hang out and not do much of anything, what's called a latent stage. Sometimes in the latent stage, it does change the metabolism of the bacterium and will cause the bacteria to produce new substances. Uh, scarlet fever, I mean, I don't think that's around much anymore, and you may be too young to remember it, but... No, it's around. <laughs> yeah, it's a complication of strep infections. There's been a resurgence in the UK. There is. Okay. Well, that is due to a phage, a bacteriophage virus that gets into the strep and causes the strep to produce this toxin that creates the redness of the skin. When the phage becomes activated, it kills its host bacterium. Trying to figure out exactly how to navigate that be a challenge. You can experiment with antibiotics, create their own problems. Antibiotics definitely increase the dysbiosis that's associated with COVID-19. That's an emerging area that we need to figure out. I've been very interested in the possible role for stevia. And I just put that out there because it's, you know, it's a common sweetener. Yeah. Stevia actually activates many bacteriophages and will convert them from a latent form to the active lytic form. So that's not a positive thing. It may be good, it may be bad. I think it's going to depend on the situation. If you want to pull this virus out of the bacteria. Maybe you want to activate it because if it's latent and it's hiding there, you can't get to it. It's maybe only when it's active can you really kill it. This is an area that needs to be explored. I don't know who's going to do that in, in a laboratory, <laughs> but, but, I, but I think the work of the Italians, I think, is very important for some people with COVID-19. To go back to the vidicinals, and tolivid, just to let our listeners know that it does have interactions with other drugs, so you have to be a bit careful. A lot of people with long COVID or post-COVID sequelae have heart issues, have kidney issues, have other things that they're taking conventional medicine for. So just to make sure that people don't go out and, like Emily, take medicinal slime as a shot every day. <laughs> <laughs> But actually, Dr. Gunn, that's one of your areas, isn't it? This functional medicine, trying to actually combine these supplementary or herbal treatments with drugs. A lot of the time, we don't really have people that have that kind of oversight. A lot of the time, the GP doesn't do that for you. People are very set in their lane. I think one of the big problems that people with long COVID are facing is the way that this has been handled by the medical community in general. And it has to do with the disease model. Like, well, how do I know you have this disease? And, you know, there's not really a treatment for this disease. I've had patients who went to medical centers that were doing great research. I mean, research that I'm following. And they were trying to get help and they would be told, well, we're doing all this research, but we're just treating symptoms. And 
that's changed. It's changing a very little bit. It's just a major problem that this thing, that the consequences of COVID are being presented as, well, this is some mystery that we don't really understand and there's not really any treatment for it. It's not really the case. We understand a lot about the physiology. It's just very complicated. But it's really interesting when you go back to some of the earliest treatments were almost instinctual. Immediately when we were diagnosed, we were put on an antihistamine regimen. Yeah, the H2 blockers were especially were early on identified as being beneficial. Although I was on them for nine months and they made me feel horrendous. So I felt really good on the H2 blocker, except that I think it then gave me reflux because I took so much of it. Okay, so okay, so there are two things that happen with, there's probably more than two, but there, there are two things that happen with H2 blockers like famotidine. Um, number one, because they're suppressing stomach acid, which is not the reason they're being used. That's the main reason they're out there in the market. It's not the reason that they're helpful COVID, but because they suppress stomach acid, you get an overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine. And that contribute to the dysbiosis that's occurring. And the second thing is a phenomenon called acid rebound. And this was, has actually been demonstrated with a stronger drug, omeprazole, in a different class of acid suppressant. There was a study done where they took a bunch of college students uh, who had no symptoms at all put them on omeprazole for 30 days and had them stop it. And 30% of them developed heartburn because when you start suppressing the production of acid in the stomach, the cells of the stomach know that and they start making more acid-secreting cells. Pull that away and now you have an excess of acid, even though you didn't initially. The H1, H2 treatment protocol you do suggest, though, that there are some people who struggle with those treatments because they have the mast cell activation. Yes. I mean, the first rule of mast cell activation is that there are no rules. <laughs> that anything can happen. Right. Because the mast cells are just like loose cannons. Now, maybe somewhere along the way, as this condition is being researched more, we'll understand why does something that should help help this person, but it makes the other person much worse. Uh, what is there about the specific effects? All I can say right now is that any treatment that may help a person with mast cell activation can make them worse. <laughs> that make, that's a very difficult situation for a person to be in. But you need to be aware of it. You need to be cognizant of it so that you can stand up. If you're working with a health practitioner who says, no, just keep taking this, just keep taking this, that almost never works. As a rule of thumb, you have this fantastic protocol that's all set out on, on your website. But as a rule of thumb, do you recommend that patients try certain things for a certain period of time to see its effects before stopping? Are there, or it, does it vary from drug to drug, supplement to supplement? It will vary from supplement to supplement. Uh, just to take the H2 blocker, for example, there was a study that showed that the immune benefits of the H2 blocker didn't appear for 30 days. I think maybe it was a combined H1, H2 protocol, but 
it, this was not an immediate thing. You know, if you have an itch and you take an H1 block, you have heartburn, you take an H2 block, you're going to get rapid relief. But the immune effects of this protocol took 30 days. Right. You see, so that's really interesting. So some, you need to actually be on them for a prolonged period of time before they can reach whatever cells they're yes. needing to affect. But I believe that in terms of regulation here, you're actually only supposed to be on those H1 and H2 blockers for three months, I think, normally. Going further than that, is that then detrimental? Or are there some of these products that you can use longer term? Oh, there are a lot of people who take for much longer periods of time. I'm not a fan of a blocker approach to medicine. In other words, 80 or 90% of the drugs that are available outside of antibiotics, which have a specific target, are designed to control some cellular function that has gotten hyperactive. And you can tell by the categories of drug names, beta blockers, antihistamines, blocker or anti or inhibitor is in almost every, the name of almost every drug category. Well, these substances that you're trying to block, they're there for a reason. So an approach to medicine that is based on, let's block these things that have gotten hyperactive. That's a very incomplete approach that may be necessary for some short-term protection. It's a far from ideal long-term strategy, and it's going to have consequences because it's like you're putting cells in straitjackets. I mean, for 40 years, my goal has been to try and find ways not to do that and to help people without doing that. I mean, before the pandemic, I my attitude towards the acid suppressants was, how do we get you off this? Yeah, yeah it's my, my philosophy. I never take drugs for very long because then your body then changes. Needs it. This uh, term that you used earlier, the allostasis, body's changing and becoming dependent on something else. It's not getting it back to homeostasis. Right, right. right. I, I'd like to ask you, have you heard of this new study that's actually just come out in France about a potential treatment for this ACE2 malfunction in long COVID? Yes, I, but I haven't studied the study. I, it just came across my desk two days ago, and I've been too busy to actually sit down and understand what this really means. Because th I think there's some real new, new information there yeah. that could be very valuable, but I, I haven't had a chance to analyze it. We'll come back to you then. Yeah, <laughs> this feels like a, your work is vast. It feels like it's an introduction to some of your work, but perhaps you would be prepared to come back and talk to us about that study or sort of do a part two with us to continue this discussion. Is that something? Sure. I'm, I'm always happy to talk about ways that people with long COVID can get help because I think there's a desperate need for, yeah, there's a desperate need for information that empowers people yeah. rather than this kind of bleak picture of, you know, oh, this is a mysterious illness and there's, you know, there are no treatments for it and you're going to have to wait till there's a treatment. Um, what, what I will say is one of the most important, if someone is really struggling with fatigue, um, the key question that I want to understand is, does this person 
have some form of autonomic dysfunction, because that is definitely going to impact the way we approach their fatigue. Because there are a lot of things that can be done with drugs even, well, with natural products, diet, with patterns of exercise, with drugs, to relieve those symptoms, to prevent the deconditioning that occurs. Because that's yet another spiral. Right, because the deconditioning really takes things downward in a spiral. The hardest part, in my experience, is dealing with the phenomenon of post-exercise malaise. And that is actually an inappropriate name. It's not post-exercise malaise. You feel like your legs have been shot off afterwards. I mean, it's a total crash. But it's also not necessarily because you went out for a run. Noreen and I talk extensively about how sometimes after a heavy edit, that's when I get my PEM. It's a cognitive. Right. And, and that's a phenomenon that I think really needs to be understood better. From my perspective, that's the number one challenge. There's so much that we understand about all the other phenomena and they can be addressed, but the PEM, that's a frontier that I think really need to try and crack. What's comforting is that he's looking at some of this herbal medicines. He knows about the interactions with the actual other possible drugs that you're taking to help with other things that you're dealing with. Particularly interesting, the discussion about how certain things that you take to help with certain symptoms can then cause the problems or exacerbate other symptoms. It's not even necessarily interactions with other drugs, but it's interactions with your actual body. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's something that we, you and I have discussed. It's all of that knock-on, the knock-on effect. What, you're taking that drug for that purpose, but the side effect or the knock-on effect of it is potentially more detrimental than the benefits that you're getting from it. I think this was the first interview that we've done. We've talked to quite a few people about Marcel's because it's this kind of enigma of what we call our allergic reactions and it was really interesting because I, I feel like at the end of our chat with him, I felt like I understood more about the role of Marcel's and how important they are. Yeah, and their kind of really varied role of Marcel's, the sort of extent of them, removing it from just being that allergic symptomatology. I agree. I really feel like they're far more important and I think in years to come we'll learn how important they are in the functioning of our bodies and our well-being. We should dig some more into them. I mean, is everyone okay out there? <laughs> like, let us know. Let us know how you're doing and let us know if there are areas that we really, really have missed out because we try to look at everything and all of the papers and all aspects of long COVID, but obviously we come to it from our own symptom set. So the things that seem highly, highly relevant to us, uh, there might be other things that are way more relevant to you, our listeners. So let us know. Engage with us on social or via our website. And vote for us. The British Podcast Awards. Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. 
Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.